Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that, just like Michael Jordan, he knows the ceiling is the roof. He is the captain. What? It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. This week, we are very happy to be drinking Tweak Bourbon Barrel Age Stout by Avery Brewing Company, Garage Mm. Grade. Four and a half bottle caps out of five. Check out this American Imperial Double Stout. Mm. I drank a few of these on Friday, checking out some new games with some friends. And because of the high ABV, it's a uh, 17.5%. Well, forget about driving because I couldn't even read after a couple <laughs> of these. So, so be very aware, friends. You normally can't read anyways. <laughs> Either way, you're going to love this strong boozy stout with coffee added, aged in bourbon barrels from the very cool people at Avery Brewing. And Tweak was brought to us by these very cool people. First up, we have Jillian in Austin, Texas. Next, we have Jake from State Farm in good old Cleveland, Ohio. Well, she sounds hideous. Well, she's a man. Also, we have Jennifer who says cheers from Boston. Yo, where you parked the car, Bobo? Next, let's give a very long distance cheers to Martha all the way in Korea. Martha Stewart. <laughs> Let's go up north and say hi to Mickey's Tackle Box, who says, Your podcast helps me forget that I'm freezing my jib off while I'm walking my cold Canadian mail route. For some reason, Captain, I'm not sure why, but we have a ton of mailmen that seem to listen to the show. So big, <laughs> a big shout out to the mail carriers everywhere. Keep your jib warm. And from Harleysville, Pennsylvania... J and T, they want us to do uh, Richard Ramirez. We get a lot of Richard Ramirez request episodes. Aren't you afraid of Richard? I, he's he's one of the guys that Keeps I'm afraid of. Yes. And last but not least, we have Wyatt in Jacksonville who says, "I'm buying only a beer for the captain." So mm. thanks, Wyatt. I guess I'm just going to sit here and watch the captain drink. Yeah. Why don't you just sit over there and sit on your goddamn thumbs? Yeah. So thanks a lot, Wyatt. Thanks to everybody that donated. Like always. We like your tea. And maybe you'd like to buy us a beer or two for next week's show. If so, go to truecrimegarage.com 
click on the donate button. And maybe you just want to send me beers and leave Nick out. It's not like you host the show. I'm starving over here. (laughs) I'm starving for beer. And for social media, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, all that stuff. Untapped at True Crime Garage. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer, and let's talk some true crime. In 1985, hunters found a large metal drum in Allenstown's Bear Brook State Park. Then in 2000, the second drum was found by Cody. In all, four unidentified victims, a woman, two girls related to her, and another girl were found inside. The two, three-year-olds, little girl, that looks like a, like a brick has been used to you know, smash her head in. Retired New Hampshire State Police Detective John Cody vividly remembers the moment when he stumbled upon a rusty metal drum, two bodies stuffed inside. I took my flashlight and looked in and you could see there was something white inside the plastic bag, so I peeled back a little of the plastic bag and that's when you could see that there was bones in there. Lisa, that's why investigators want to come back here to search the very same spot in the spring where the bodies of a woman and three girls were found. They're also hoping all this media coverage will help bring their loved ones forward. November 10, 1985, there's this little town in New Hampshire called Allenstown. Mm -hmm. And in 85, the population was less than 4,000 people. In Allenstown, we have the Bear Brook State Park. So on that November day, there's two brothers. They're out hunting. This, of course, would be deer hunting season. And they're on the outskirts of the Bear Brook (laughs) State Park. You say, of course. Like like you're the best hunter in the world. I'm I'm constantly scouting. He's an avid hunter, people. This is off of a wooded trail, which is off of Everwood Drive. These two brothers spot a bunch of trash, and amongst the trash is a tarp. The tarp is covering something. So Mm -hmm. under the tarp, they discover a barrel, and it's lying on its side. This is one of those big 55-gallon metal drums. You know, I've seen pictures of this site, and the barrel appears to be like a dark blue or maybe even a black color. I'm sure everyone's familiar with these types of barrels. And the barrel that the hunters find... It's sealed. Yeah, and the two brothers, they decide that they're going to investigate. So, of course, they open up the barrel. Inside, they find trash bags. And inside one of those trash bags, they find remains. These are human remains. So, technically, this barrel is found on private property. On this property, there had once been a camp store mm-hmm. that had operated for the park goers of Bear Brook State Park. This was called the Bear Brook Store. But this small store burned in July of 1983. So now it's just a shell of the store Mm -hmm. that remained. So on this private property, basically the whole place kind of looks like a dump in my opinion. It has been described as having a small burnt building, which was the store, a mobile home, a camper, several broken down vehicles, several barrels, and appliances that were scattered on the grounds of this property. 
Back then, the Allenstown Police Department was run by Chief Norm Connor. And like you said, this is a very small community. Yeah, small population. So, of course, the police department is very small, and they certainly are limited as far as investigative resources goes. So, Chief Connor brings in the state police to assist in the investigation. Back then, this may sound crazy today, but back then, New Hampshire didn't even have a medical examiner's office. So, the remains were flown to Maine to be examined. Once in Maine, what they discovered in regards to the human remains in the barrel was that they were actually two sets of remains stuffed into the barrel, wrapped in these trash bags. We now know that we have the remains of two females. We have the remains of an adult woman and a young girl. The girl probably not even old enough to be like a teenager. They do the tough work and they put together a sketch of the woman and a sketch of the girl. They release these sketches to the media and to the public in hopes that someone would recognize these two and put names to these bodies. Obviously, when you have a victim or victims, usually you have means of identifying the victim. Sometimes you'll find identifiers with the body, mm-hmm. you know, like a photo ID, credit card, driver's license, something with a name and or a face on it. Or you have family, friends, or neighbors that can identify a body. So you start by making an identification to the victims, and then once you have that established, you can start investigation by interviewing the persons in in the victim's inner circle. Right. Usually that will provide you with, you know, the victim's timeline. You know, who who were they last with? Where were they last seen? What were they doing the day they went missing? Yeah, or in this case, did they have a husband or a boyfriend or, you know, they, they normally look at that first. Yeah, you know, th- what were they planning to do? Do they have any enemies? Unfortunately, we have a situation here where we have no identifiers. We have decomposed remains. Mm-hmm. So you're left with creating and releasing sketches. Yeah, yeah, a sketch that you don't even know how clear the sketch is. And this is also before the the technology that they had where they'd take the DNA to reconstruct, you know, like a, a drawing or an image of the person. So without victims names and knowing very little about these people, we have no inner circle to interview. Hell, we have we have no circle at all basically. Right. One possibility being here that the remains are related, um, that the grown woman could be the mother of the girl that was found with her. That was certainly a possibility and something that investigators were considering as they try to put names to these bodies. So they don't know who these people are or who the victims are. So you'd think at some point they'd have to start looking in that area for possible missing persons Mm -hmm. and maybe trying to connect the dots that way. Yeah, and that's one thing that they were able to cover a lot of ground on. Mm-hmm. They they were able to eliminate persons as not being the identities of the bodies found. Right. However, of course, they were unable to actually identify the bodies. The investigative efforts did not lead to answers, and eventually the two bodies were released for burial. The Allenstown Police Chief Connor, he organized a graveside service complete with a priest and a minister because they didn't know what religion these persons these people could be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we got to, I give a little applause there to the police chief for doing right by the people that, that were found these unknown victims. Yeah. But they might not have wanted a priest or you know, a pastor or anybody. Of course, but they didn't want to be in a barrel either. Right. Right. Um, so the, the two were buried um, together in a single steel casket. Uh, and this was kind of a well thought out plan as far as their burial goes, because 
the thought was that if they ever needed to exhume the bodies, this would make that whole process a lot easier. Right. They were buried in St. John Baptist Cemetery, and it's a local uh, a local company, the Epson Memorials Service. They donated, donated a granite stone complete with a carved rose and a picture of a woman and a child holding hands. The reading on the stone is pretty vague because, again, not knowing who these people are, but but it starts off saying, here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman and a girl. All right, so we, we know it's a woman and we know it's a girl, but what else do we know? Do we know anything? Okay, so both are female victims. They're mm-hmm. both found November 10th, 1985. And we will refer to the grown woman as victim number one. So in 1985, this is what we can tell you about victim number one. She was a Caucasian female, approximately 23 to 33 years of age. She was approximately five foot four to five foot seven inches tall. Mm-hmm. She was about 120 to 140 pounds. She had shoulder length brown hair and she has had some dental work done. She had three fillings and she is missing some of her teeth. Investigators believe that she had been bludgeoned to death. She is listed as UP number 2174 with the NamUs organization. Now we have the girl as well. And we will call her victim number two. She too is. And, and for people that don't know what NamUs is. Uh, NamUs is an organization where they they try to identify uh, the, the remains, unknown remains that are found. And they keep a big catalog of those. And they can be accessed by somewhat by the public. But mainly it's for uh, law enforcement. Law enforcement resources. Yeah, so like Jane Doe's and John Doe's. Mm-hmm. So the girl will call her victim number two. She too is a Caucasian female believed to be between the ages of five and 11. She would have been somewhere in the area of four foot, two inches, maybe four foot, four inches tall and weighing 65 to 85 pounds. She too had brown hair. Uh, This is believed to be collar length hair. Uh, She has both of her ears pierced with two piercings each, so double pierced ears. Mm -hmm. And she is listed as UP number 2173 with NamUs. So both were believed to have been bludgeoned to death. Both were dismembered, and basically basically they're stuffed into this barrel and thrown out like trash. The investigation, as far as the investigation goes, let's let's go through this. Mm -hmm. I believe, and I think that, that you'll agree with me, that police really did try everything that they could think of, um, at the time. So in the beginning of this investigation, the New Hampshire state police started off by sifting through missing people cases from the seventies and the eighties. Right. Okay. But of course they were unable to identify these bodies in 1986, the New Hampshire state police, they get a strong lead and they actually believe that this lead was going to solve the case. So this is when they suspected two missing people named Grace Reeb and her five-year-old daughter, Gracie, as mm-hmm. being the unidentified bodies in the barrel. Which would fit with the ages mm-hmm. of the victims that we have. Yeah, it was a very strong lead, but unfortunately the dental records proved that the unidentified remains were not those of Grace and her daughter, Gracie. In 1985, with a small town, you know, you'd assume this would be big news. Well, yes, of course it was, and that's one thing that they used to try to help gather leads regarding the the identities of these two people. Uh, they they received hundreds of leads, mm-hmm. uh, and they distributed composite drawings of the victims throughout 
the northeastern part of the United States and actually all the way up into Quebec, Canada. Several people in Allenstown said that the unidentified adult woman resembled someone who had left town with several children a few years ago. But this this actually proved to be a dead end as well because later this woman was found alive in Arizona with her children. You would assume that there'd be a lot of dead ends in this case. Yeah, and, and one, one more that we run into here is out of a lot of those leads that the New Hampshire State Police received, there was a lead about a mother and a daughter who had vanished from an Indian reservation in Maine. Not only did the descriptions match the victims found in the barrel, but also the time of their disappearance seemed to match up perfectly with this whole case. Uh, but here is just another case where the mother and the daughter were actually located alive and they were found to be living just in some other town in Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And you would assume at this, maybe not assume, but, you know, it's 1985. So it's more likely that we would have these, you know, mothers that were taking their kids to get away from a maybe abusive husband or something mm-hmm. and, and maybe just didn't want to be found. And sometimes people have little to no ties to where they live at all, you know, and maybe someone goes and takes a job elsewhere and decides to up and move with their children and they have no parents local to notify that we've moved. Yeah. Or maybe you get like a really good offer to move to parts unknown and do a podcast, a local podcast there and maybe jump ship, you know? Well, we are selling uh, plots of land in parts unknown Tense. And, and they are filling up fast. So make sure you reserve yours get today. Your, use promo code garage. But I wanted, I know that these were all kind of dead end leads here. But we wanted to include these because I didn't want it to make it sound like, you know, the police couldn't identify these people. So they just kind of sat around. It, right. it wasn't that case at all. You know, they're they're pouring through missing persons cases. They're checking the databases that are available at the time. And they're going out and physically looking for these people to to determine if, if they match up or not. Mm-hmm. And again, receiving leads and following up on these leads. So I, I see a situation here where. We have a police chief of a very small police department. I think he does the right thing by immediately bringing in the state, the New Hampshire State Police. Yeah, yeah. Always and always a good thing. Bring bring yeah, exactly. Bring in these people that have the resources, that have the funding and have the manpower or woman power to to do the hard work. Well, here's what gets me. Is just imagine, you know, first of all, just go back to the hunters, yeah. right? You're a hunter. You're just you're hanging out with your brother. Do you, do people drink beer when they hunt? I think some people do. Yeah, I, I don't. I've been shooting and stuff, but I, I'm not a hunter myself. But so you you find this barrel. One, I don't think I'd have the guts to open the damn thing. Yeah, you made a bit of a noise when, when we yeah. when we were going through the barrel portion. And I actually I had I had thought <sighs> that we would say like like don't open up that barrel. You know what I mean? Like because I don't know that I would like it. it and actually, I happened to I wanted to look up what what hunting season they would be in in New Hampshire at that time right? to, to actually verify that it was an actual hunting season because part of me thought, well, is this strange? Because in some cases you do have the perpetrator of a crime is actually the person that will later report. Right. Right. That they found that they found the body. And so it was actually hunting season, but it seemed a little strange to me that these guys are just out and they're like, Oh, we found a barrel. Check out that barrel over there. Let's go. Uh, Let's let's go pop that baby open and see what's inside. Well, I think what's weird about that is that there there are cars just around. There's mm-hmm. you know old cars. There's trash. 
So it's not like it's just like this middle of a field and there's a barrel and we should open it. And like it's it's kind of odd that they decided we're going to open it. But that's creepy enough. And then imagine being the chief of police in this small community and you're going, okay, now we got these two victims. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it becomes more horrendous because one is a child. and that, But then you can't even start really the investigation because you can't even figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different levels of horror here. And I actually came across an interview with one of the brothers, one of the hunters that was mm-hmm. out there that day that discovered the barrel. And this is many years after the fact. And they they had said that they got like some form of PTSD from finding this thing. That yeah. These guys were like avid outdoor guys. They were always hunting and they found this thing and it really affected them big time. Well, they, there's some things you can't unsee. Yeah. And in the one, the one brother said, you know, I, you know, he said, I didn't return to the woods or to a wooded area for almost 10 years because it just kind of, he's, he's like, I got afraid of what I might see out there or what I might find or who might be out lurking in the, in the woods. Well, and if you think with avid hunters that there's possibly, you know, the hunters would have to deal with, you know, carcasses of animals. So maybe they wouldn't be as affected by this but it probably takes on a whole different meaning or a whole different psycho. There's some psychological thing there where this is human remains. This is not mm-hmm. a deer. Yeah. And you're right. It's something you can't unsee. It's probably something that unfortunately creeps into your dreams at night over and over again. So they make this discovery in 1985 and the leads are going dead mm-hmm. there. You know, everything's a dead end. And it seems like it's just going to, we're going to have to chalk it up and put it to the side and just say, we, we don't even know who these victims are. We, we, we don't even know what to do with this case. And this is going to be become cold. Yeah. And you can tell by some of those leads that they were following that it appears that I bet you these investigators thought several times that they had this thing solved or at least had placed names to these, to these remains. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately they were able, never able to do so. And actually, not only that, the the bad part here, though, is they end up learning nothing new about the female victims throughout the course of this investigation. Uh, and I really do think they tried everything that they could think of um, from checking. Uh, they, they started doing other things, too, where they were checking elementary schools in New Hampshire. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to go out and look for a situation where maybe there is a girl that was attending school one day and no longer was attending the next day. Right. And, and for whatever reason, just wasn't reported missing or the paperwork didn't get filed or, or something. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they did, and this sounds extremely tedious to me, uh, they were checking medical records for every person um, that was listed as missing uh, or, or persons that they could find medical records for from everywhere from basically Cape Cod all the way out to California. And they find nothing in this as well. I mean, think about how long of a process that has to be. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a task that I'd give you to do. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to do that. So after the case goes cold, we, we have a new person enter the story. And this is in 2000. There's a state police sergeant. His name is John Cody. And right, so 15 years later. Yes, he was assigned to take over the case. So back then, the state of New Hampshire did not have a cold case unit. So what they would do is that state troopers would be assigned old cases. You know, you put fresh eyes to an old case. 
So John Cody. Might have been a little bit of fun for the state troopers. Yeah. he. he they're doing more like, you know, footwork. Mm-hmm. Investigative type work. So John Cody, he decides that he is going to go down to the site where the body, where the bodies and the barrel were found. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to see the location for himself and see if he can search out and maybe find some clues. I mean, it, it seems like a fruitless effort to me because it's 15 years later, but I don't know what, what, you know, the things that John Cody knows, uh, and who knows what he thinks he could find. Well, I don't, I don't think it's fruitless on the fact that we, like we mentioned, there's, it's almost a little bit of a junkyard down there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, th- there's possible clues around every corner. This is on May 9th, 2000. Officer Cody goes to the location of the privately owned wooded lot that is near the trailer. This is near a trailer park, and it's also on the outskirts of the Bear Brook State Park. So this is where the story is going to take a very strange twist. While Officer Cody is examining the area, he located another barrel. This one is approximately 100 yards from the f- where the first barrel was found. Mm-hmm. So just about a football field away from where he found the first barrel. So we have this situation here, Captain, right? We have the the cold case state trooper. He's out there checking out this area. Mm-hmm. He knows what was found in 1985. Right. He's fully aware. He's on the investigation. And he's out there and he well, spots and he, an identical barrel. And he knows what there were what was found in the barrel. Yeah. And And so now we have a similar barrel, not that far away. But again, it's been fifteen years. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there's you know, the other question is, as you're searching this area, do you see any other kind of barrels and containers? You probably see a bunch of stuff. Um, but this is very similar. And, yeah. he, and he's probably been looking at these pictures for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so what's going through his mind at that time? Yeah. Well, I, I, I would guess that he's probably hoping to find clothing or maybe some type of murder weapon, or, or he's probably thinking that there were may have be other things that were dumped at that same site along with those two first victims. And this is different than when the hunters found the barrel because the hunters find a barrel and it's like, well, you could open it up, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. But now you're in a situation as the detective where there's kind of two possibilities. It's nothing or, or it's more of the same. Or it could be be evidence of towards the first victims that were found right this could be the smoking gun Mm -hmm. the big question would be do you open up this barrel that of course is the big question but one question that he must be asking himself too is was this something that was searched in 1985 you know how much of this land and things on the land were searched in 1985 yeah maybe they missed something Mm -hmm. uh let's get into that right after this beer break The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. 
unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself 
to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, and we're back. Cheers, everybody. So in 1985, two hunters discovered this first barrel with two sets of remains in it. And now we have this situation in 2000 where police sergeant John Cody is back at the scene and he's looking for clues and scoping out the area. What he discovers while he's there is he finds a second barrel. Opening it up, looking for clues, unfortunately what he does find inside is the sets of two more remains. Now the question becomes, is this just a dumping ground or is this connected to the first barrel? Yeah, and what they find inside is, again, these are dismembered remains uh, wrapped in plastic and these people were disposed of like trash, just like the first two. Uh, But again, we have a situation here where these are two unidentified bodies. What they do learn and what they now know is as follows. The remains found were that of two young girls both younger than the girl that was found with the woman in 1985. Mm -hmm. So we will call these two victims, victim number three and victim number four. Victim number three, or what some would call the middle child, is, well, this is because she is younger than victim number two, the girl found in 1985, and she is older than the girl that she is found with in 2000. Mm -hmm. She is believed to be two to four years of age, She is listed at three foot, 10 inches tall, weight unknown. She had wavy brown hair and a pronounced overbite. She is listed as UP number 2175 on NamUs. Now, victim number four is the youngest of all of the victims. She is believed to be one to three years of age, two foot, five inches tall. Her weight too is unknown and she had blonde wavy hair. She had a large gap in her upper front teeth, and she is listed as UP number 2176 on NamUs. Both of these girls were Caucasian. They, just like the first two victims, were believed to have been bludgeoned, and they were again dismembered. 100% Caucasian? Um, Well, well, we'll get into that. The single steel casket idea is going to pay off a bit, because in 2000, after the discovery of the new body barrel, This led to the exhumation of the woman and child found in 1985. This, of course, is going to be for multiple reasons, but one of the things that they really want to do here is to set up a DNA comparison. Okay, so here is what we have learned from the DNA testing. The testing found that the woman was biologically related to the oldest child. This is victim number two, the girl that was found with the woman. Mm -hmm. It is also determined that the woman was biologically related to the youngest girl found, this being victim number four. Yeah, the the baby. 
So victim one is biologically related to victim two, victims two and four. I believe when DNA was not so advanced originally, they could prove that the woman was related in the sense that she was either the mother, the aunt, or possibly a sister to victims two and four. Of course, science gets better, and then they are later able to determine with further testing Mm -hmm. that she is, in fact, maternally related to victims two and four. So she is the the mother. Now, we have this weird thing here, though. Because there are all these people, but who is this unrelated middle child? Victim number three is not maternally related to victim number one. But there is a possibility at the time that she is related to the other girl victims, meaning that she could have possibly the same father or maybe some more distant type relative to the two. Right. So they can't say that she is related to the other girl victims for sure, but they also cannot officially rule that out. With knowing the ages of these victims, does that kind of pinpoint a time of when they were actually murdered? Yes, and this is kind of weird to me because this is what the investigators are able to to say. And this is their statement as being, and quote, all four victims were killed between 1980 and 1985 and possibly as early as 1977. <laughs> Can't you kind of right. see the press conference any... right there and that, that being delivered? Uh, between uh, 80 and 85, but maybe 77. So let's touch on something real quick here. The The first two victims were described as having been found in trash bags inside the 55-gallon barrel. Mm-hmm. Victims three and four were described as having been found in plastic inside of the second 55-gallon barrel. But what I did find later was a statement where an officer says, we believe this plastic to be trash bags as well, matching the trash bags from the first barrel. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe that's their connection. So most likely, I'm guessing after sitting there for an additional 15 years, just like you know the bodies were far more decomposed than the first two, right. these trash bags could have either been cut up or maybe they deteriorated over time as well. And I know that might sound dumb because, you know, we're told that plastic does not break down and that is pretty much true. But there are a few types of bacteria that will, in fact, break down plastic. Also, there's this thing that happens with sunlight over time that can create a situation that will eventually begin to break down plastic. Did the murders take place somewhere and then were they put into bags, transported and just maybe happen to find, you know, happenstance that they happen to find these barrels? Because you're talking about a 55-gallon barrel. They're probably somewhat weight to them. Yeah. So, or did the murders take place somewhere else and then put in the barrels and then transported to the scene in the barrels? Those are all very good questions. And and one thing, one theory that locals have brought up was that they had, locals thought that this would have been somebody that would have been local to the area or knew the area. Right. Because the area where these barrels were found is not like easily accessible from the highway or anything like that. It's not like somebody just pulled over and dumped these things out and kept on going. And then you have the, the other issue, because we talked about the trailer park that was close. Mm-hmm. The, the One of the issues there is, you know, it is the 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And what kind of records were kept on rentals there? Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody could have been renting, you know, and who would know when somebody's coming and going. Or possibly somebody just shacked up with somebody for a brief period of time and weren't technically listed as a tenant. Right. On the lease. Yeah. 
So we have this very weird situation, right, Captain? We have four victims. Well, I don't even think. Well, it's weird, but I think it's it's gruesome. I mean, we got four bodies that were mutilated and put into a barrel, mm-hmm. into two separate barrels, all with unknown identities. But even more strange, there is one. You know, there there is not even anybody listed in any database that matches this criteria. You would think that with the advancement of DNA and all of the the items that were collected, that you would know something about these victims and Mm -hmm. that maybe you would have a young mother with two children listed in some database somewhere that you could link to at least three of the four victims, right? Right. You have a mother of two and you'd think that somebody at some point would come forward and say, that's possibly mine. Uh, you know, possibly my daughter. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like these. Uh, it's almost like these four victims are the the forgotten. It's conceivable that if you could identify any of these that victims, that you would have some kind of leads to go off of. But then you have this other girl victim that that is not related to the others. That you know, you would think you would have a situation where you have this woman and her two kids were last seen here, or they were last living here. Right, and if we could identify her. Right, or if we can identify any of them, then the question for me would be asking the family, why didn't you report her missing? Mm-hmm. Right? Was she not your favorite daughter? So you just just figured all she went off and with somebody. And look, I know it's a different time. You know, late seventies, early eighties, it's a different time. There was a lot of times that pe- people, like I said, they ran away from their abusive husbands. Now, rightfully so, right? Right, but but people still reported children as missing, and 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 I get what you're saying. It, it is a little more believable that a, that a mother and a couple of kids possibly go missing, and something tragic happened to them. Mm-hmm. But then you throw this whole wrench in the thing where you have this unidentified third girl who's not related to the others, and so it's weird to have a situation where you basically have most of one family disappear, something tragic happened to him, not reported missing, and then on top of that, they're linked to this other victim who's not reported, not reported missing as well. Right, that's what flipping blows my mind. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, if it, if this was your sister, you'd report her missing, mm-hmm. right? If this was your girlfriend, you'd report her missing, unless you're the one that put her in the, these barrels, right? Mm-hmm. But but still, or maybe, maybe this person was an orphan. Maybe they're maybe this girl uh, didn't have family members. Mm-hmm. Maybe she was a runaway. Uh, the, the thing that bothers me too on this is what if this, what if the girl, okay, just, uh, just go down on this little rabbit hole with me. Mm-hmm. But what if this girl was actually abducted, you know, in the sixties, right? And that she was reported missing in the sixties. And this person was groomed or was was captive. Oh, like a J.C. Dugard situation where it's where you take right. somebody captive and you keep them as a family member or keep them in your home right. and then father children with with them. Right. And so now you have these uh, these two children, right? Mm-hmm. And and we know that they're connected to um, the oldest victim, but we have no record of them going missing. Yeah. So as, as much as I. I there's a part of me that doesn't want to believe that there's, I mean, look, we all have douchey family members, right? Mm-hmm. But. Do you want me to list mine? <laughs> I don't think we have enough time on this show. <laughs> Met some of his family members, not not the best of people. Um, but it seems unlikely to me that nobody would report this girl missing. 
Yeah, and you're doing exactly what everybody does once they review the victim list here. Your mind starts to run wild and you try to make sense of this whole situation. You kind of start to come up with your own stories. Was this was this middle child somebody that the mother was babysitting? You know, or, or was this an adopted kid? Um, you know, or, or was it a kid that she was forced to take care of? Mm-hmm. You know, some psycho kidnapped her when she was a kid or a teenager. And that's what they should really be diving into. Were these people living with somebody? Were they living with a man that did this to them? And was this man They're, potentially but, right, the, not living? But I, I would assume cap. They were captive. You know, they were taken, captured by this guy. They were kidnapped. This girl was kidnapped, and then she was probably forced to have these children. And now there's this other child, mm-hmm. and she is having to raise that child as well. Yeah, so there, there's a question of where is the father? Why didn't he report anybody missing? But the other thing, too, is then you have a situation where there has to be another mother involved in this inner circle of victims that didn't report anybody missing, too. So there's so what we end up here with is a few answers as far as the DNA testing goes in their findings in 2000. Mm-hmm. But we all we ultimately just get a whole bunch of more questions. Well, and the other thing that they're able to do with the DNA is to do the DNA recon, you know, uh, profile picks mm-hmm. where they can take uh, and make an image of the person based off of DNA. Yeah, and that advances some of the sketches that were released from 1985. They, they further advance them and put more likelihood and more likeness to to those sketches in 2000 and the middle child, which we don't know if she is related or not. We can't rule that out, but to me, she looks like uh, possibly, possibly Filipino or possibly some kind of Asian descent. Yeah. And there, there are some differences in her, her look compared to the others. Let's, let's step aside though, and go into some suspects because in 2000, they did start coming up with some, some suspicious people here. Uh, the New Hampshire State Police started to look at a serial killer. His name was John Edward Robinson uh, as a, being a suspect in this case. Mm-hmm. Now, this does make some sense here because John Robinson was apprehended in June of 2000. So less than one month after the discovery of the second body barrel, he's apprehended. And we see this happen a lot where police apprehend a serial killer. And in some cases, if not most cases, they can be unaware that they even have a serial killer running around at all. Right. And then they arrest someone for an individual murder. And then they quickly become aware that, Hey, this, you know, this guy's a serial killer. And sometimes that means, okay, well now we need to figure out this guy's movements. Was this his first arrest? I mean, was he in jail during the times where these barrels possibly would have been dumped? Um, no, he, he would have been out. Um, and you know, they want to figure out all the places that he would have lived, all the places that he would have worked. Does he travel for work? Does he travel a lot for fun? All of these things, because it always raises the question, if this guy was capable of killing a handful of people here, he's probably capable of killing people elsewhere. Of course. What was his typical victim? Well, that that's the thing. And that's why I think that they, they looked at him. So Robinson was suspected of having killed eight or more people in more than one state. Uh, They have linked him to deaths in Kansas and Missouri. But the thing that I think landed him on the suspect list was that he had a similar MO that would fit this case. Robinson had been known to prey upon single mothers, and in some cases he was able to convince or at least attempted to try to convince the victim's families, you know, the, the mom and dad, 
of the single mother, that the victim had moved away of their own will, making it look like, you know, he, he had written letters and sent them to moms and dads stating that the, the mother had taken a job elsewhere in another mm. state. What she, a piece of work. She was doing well. She didn't intend to move back. You know, so these parents have their daughter who's actually been out and been murdered and they think that she's off and fine. And so therefore she's not reported as missing. Yeah. Yeah. Note to self, if some dope writes you a letter saying, Hey, uh, your daughter's with me and she's fine. She just don't want to come home anymore. Uh, that guy's a dope. Don't listen to him and, uh, do your due diligence. Well, just to go into how manipulative this guy was. Okay. Um, he, there was a situation where he had killed a mother and he had convinced her family that she had moved away and he needed to get rid of the lady's kid. So what he did was he set up some fake adoption and adopted the kid out to some other couple. The only good thing here is that these people thought it was a legit adoption. Um, they weren't like some weirdos looking to illegally adopt a kid. Well, and it's a very good thing that he didn't kill the kid. You know, it's, yeah, and that shows you why his M.O. matches this type of case. You know, they're looking for somebody that could make people disappear, go unreported. Um, he is ultimately, eventually ruled out of this case. Uh, uh-huh. I'm guessing that they're able to figure out that he would not have been in the area at the time of when they think that these yeah. barrels were placed there. I'll post it. I'll post a couple of his pictures online. I mean, this guy is definitely a creepy looking dude, has... His giant glasses, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and one of, one of the things they call him they or refer to him as, uh, Robinson, they refer to him as the Internet's first serial killer because later in his killing career, uh, he he started using chat rooms to, to you know, hook yeah, this, up with these victims. This other site also says uh, they call him the Internet slave master. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a... Uh, creepy dude i mean this is this is el creepo this situation though definitely fits a lot of theories that were going around at the time um you know of course one of the theories was that this would be the work of a serial killer or maybe even possibly an organized crime member uh because we've seen throughout time that that organized crime members seem to be pretty good at disposing of bodies um, some have believed that the killer was someone local. We discussed that because of the the highway situation and it being an area that wouldn't be familiar to people outside of the town. Um, and of course, there's also the theory, which is a very plausible theory, in my opinion, is that the victims could have been killed by a boyfriend or a husband. So starting in 1985, this case quickly became a cold case mm-hmm. and then it gets reopened in 2000. Yeah. But then, you know, now it's 2017. It's since have gone cold again. Mm-hmm. But we've noticed with a lot of these cold cases and a lot of these armchair detectives as, you know, we're trying to be, I guess, uh, or support the true crime community, that people kind of get their pet cases Yeah, that they keep researching. And I, and I know, I think, I, I believe our Facebook girl, Aurelia, actually is really into this case. Yeah, there are a lot of people out there that have followed this for the entirety of the case. We want to give a quick shout out to some very cool people that have worked very hard on this case. If you watch some of the police press conferences, um, you'll hear the investigators say that they've been working with agencies in other states. Right. And sometimes they mention that they've been working with a local lady or local amateur investigator. 
And I actually believe that they are talking about New Hampshire residents Rhonda Randall and Scott Maxwell. This is a brother and sister amateur investigative pair. And they have spent a minimum of 40 hours a week on this case for the past five years. Wow. So in doing our work. That, I mean, that's a lot of dedication. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I don't know how they have the means to do that, but they've put in a lot of hard work on this case. So in doing our research for this case, uh, we used some of their hard work as a primary source for us, as well as the local agencies as well. Uh, there have been, been many great groups involved in this investigation, but I wanted to make sure that we included Rhonda and Scott because I feel like they have been a great source and a very positive force in this investigation, and they often get left out when police and media are you know, kind of rolling through their credits. Well, cheers to them. Yeah. What's their major theory? Uh, they they have a few theories that they review, and we won't we won't have to go all the way into every one of them mm-hmm. because you can kind of get the gist of each. Just, uh, t- just put your toe into the rabbit hole. Yeah. So so let's go. This first theory here is the drunken rage theory. Hmm. So this theory is sounds like <laughs> sounds like the captain throwing a beer That's, bottle at the garage wall. That is not true. That's that never has never happened. M- maybe once. Maybe last week. Uh, so the drunken rage theory is a, you know, the woman with the two kids is living in some sort of relationship with a man and a kid Mm -hmm. and in a drunken rage, he ends up killing them all. You know, this is pretty much similar to the theory that is out there from before that they established that the mid child is not linked to the woman. This being victim number one, this is just like the family annihilator theory. That a man annihilated his entire family, either he either A, then committed suicide, or B, moved away and assumed a new identity, not reporting anybody as missing, obviously. There's also the sexual predator theory. This is that a sexual predator offers a needy family a place to stay and eventually molests or attempts to molest the children and then kills to cover up this crime. Mm-hmm. There is also the woman on the run theory which is kind of a two-parter. So we kind of brought that up, you know, uh, a battered wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thought here that, that a woman on the run with her two children runs into a situation that ends up being even more worse than what the situation she's running from or a person they are running from catches up to them at some point. Uh, But as you can see the mid child, the one that's not connected to the woman victim, number one, this mid child throws a big wrench in a lot of these different theories and certainly adds a variable that is not easily explained. Rhonda and Scott, they uh, uncovered some stuff that just doesn't seem like a law enforcement uncovered about the owner of the private property. Yeah. Remember we had said that the barrels were actually found on private property that backs up to the state park. Right. So the landowner's name is Robert Callahan and Callahan lived on the land during some of the time that these barrels could have been placed there. Uh, so, The thing here is, though, that Callahan spent time at the New Hampshire State Prison. This would be from 1991 until 1996. He was in there. So afterwards, after the first barrel was found. And he was in there for sexual assault of a minor. Oh, his red flag. And they revealed his court transcripts to to figure out exactly what this means. They didn't go into specifics, but regarding those transcripts, they were able to determine that During the course of that trial, he admitted to molesting both girls and boys over a period of time. The other thing to consider here is the trailer park that is nearby. You brought up the trailer park about possible people living there. Right. uh, People that might have been listed or not listed as living there. And I... 
I do want to say something that I heard from a now famous Ohio detective who turned author. And I'm not going to say her name because I'm not sure how many people she intended for this statement to be heard by. But she had once said that in some of these trailer parks, you can't swing a bat without hitting a sexual predator, which which makes you think, you know, it Well, note to self, I will, I'm will. i not going to be living in a trailer park then. And I'm moving out of mine immediately. Yeah, the, where we're going to have to move the garage out of our trailer park. Um, yeah, that's... Well, but you would think because of the codes now where you have to register and you can't be a certain distance, yeah, stuff like that. Times have certainly changed, and that's one thing that we see in this investigation as it goes on. Throughout the years, anytime technological advancements were made and could provide additional investigative tools, the New York, the New Hampshire State Police and the FBI, they took advantage of new technology by applying it to this case, running the necessary test and putting it to work. Yeah, the FBI doesn't mess around. Well, they did this thing. This is some weird stuff here. And, wait, and, and I would just like to say, it's to me, just because of what happened with the the, the case in Grove City and the Columbus case, mm-hmm. uh, and then the the case that's helping uh, happening right now, the Adelphi murders mm-hmm. uh, in Indiana, and now I believe the FBI is involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you see now with more modern cases because, and probably because of technology, that when the FBI gets involved, it gets solved quickly. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's fascinating to me that the, the FBI has been involved in this case and they're not any further along. Well, and the thing is, and this is my understanding here, Captain, I could be completely off base, but my understanding is for the FBI to get involved in a case, there has to actually be a break in a federal crime. Somebody has to break a federal law. Now, one bit of a murder loop, is not. Well, but that's technically investigated by a state. Right. So, but the loophole in that situation is kidnapping is considered a federal crime. Right. And therefore, you could one could argue that even if you are even being held captive for a second or two before you're murdered, that that's technically kidnapping. Anytime a person is somewhere where they don't want to be is technically kidnapping, according to the definition. So like the if definition. you're also like if you're at your job, and you don't want to be there. <laughs> well, you, is that can, well, can you, I call my boss is keeping me here. You might be stretching. I just want to go to the garage and have a couple beers. Let's talk about this isotope testing because this is, this is, yeah, this is some weird stuff. Isotope. Yes. Isotope. So basically due to chemicals and pollutants that are in our environment, and I'm sure there are several other things that I don't understand, nor could I explain, uh, that are involved, but they can determine where someone may have lived basically by determining where they wouldn't have lived. Right. Does that make sense? And I think a lot of this has to do with drinking water. Um, and so here's the situation, right? They do this isotope testing. So for victim one and her two children, this would be, you know, victim two and victim four, they have a map of the United States showing that she could have been from the Northeast and there is some of the Midwest on there and some of the West coast as well. Mm-hmm. But it basically, which sounds like I just named the entire United States. Yeah, you, know, you basically pulled the, uh, well, they were probably dumped uh, or probably murdered between 80, 85, maybe 76. <laughs> so the thing here is, though, when you look at the map, it uh, it really does eliminate a good two thirds, maybe three quarters of the United States. Mm-hmm. So it does narrow it down quite a bit. 
They do have a separate map containing some of the same testing results, this being for the third girl, victim number three. And the areas where she could have lived or been from closely resemble that of the other victims. However, the places she could have lived in the Northeast are a lot smaller. Um, so, so some very interesting stuff here. Right. So you basically make a circle of one, make a circle of the other, and then there's probably going to be a section that's overlapping and mm-hmm. then you can really kind of focus there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we see is like you touched on the advancement as far as the facial reconstructions go for the right. four victims, which have changed quite a bit over the years as well. Again, this is due to advancements in technology. The most obvious in this situation would be victim number one. Remember, we said that she was missing some of her teeth. Right. Well, that changed her appearance greatly because eventually they were able to put together a facial reconstruction with what she would have looked like with teeth. Of course, you know, this changes the appearance of the lower half of one's face almost entirely. Yeah. And originally we have evidence of blunt force trauma to the victim's heads, but the law enforcement is able to shine a little more light on possibly what happened to these uh, victims. Yeah. And that, that's something that I really question here because one thing that I've noticed that have changed in the, the, the presentation of this investigation in the last mm-hmm. few years is that regarding the two younger girls, you know, they, they originally stated that they shared the same cause of death as the two older victims. Um, which we said originally was listed as being bludgeoned. Um, But to be more precise, like the captain said, it's actually blunt force trauma to their heads. Now, this the reason why I question this is I'm not certain if this was something that they weren't making well known at the time or throughout the years, or if it was something that they actually had to scientifically reconstruct and have to spend a whole bunch of time on this situation to, to determine that that was in fact the situation. I mean, we have something that's very hard to investigate. First of all, when you don't know the victims and their names, but on top of that, you have dismembered bodies that are found in these barrels that create all kinds of problems when you're trying to forensically put this back together. Well, right. And then this case really spans over 20 years. And so the advancement of technology, you would think that you'd be leaps and bounds above where you were at on doing an autopsy, mm-hmm. even if you don't think that the the original autopsies were bad, it doesn't. It makes a lot of sense just to go back and do them again. I mean, back in you know eighty five, you know most houses didn't have computers. Now people were walking around with computers in their pockets or on on their uh, watches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if some of those autopsies contained speculation in them. Um, I know that it's supposed to just be reported fact. However, if you cannot d- make a proper determination, you can leave what would be called an expert opinion. Now, when you exhume mm-hmm. those bodies many years later, again, advancements in technology, maybe they're able to to actually determine that this is it. What a frustrating case for law enforcement, because not only do you, you're trying to figure out what happened to these individuals, and then you're also trying to find who is responsible for this. But you can't even get the first part together. You can't right. even figure out who the actual victims are. And this this goes on, like we said, we're going on almost... Uh, Over 30 years now. Yeah. And and it's That's not for time. the lack of not trying, right? I mean, we see the efforts that are being put forth. Uh, the str- and efforts and, and multiple decades. Yeah, by several agencies, by multiple states, even armchair, you know, amateur sleuths. 
getting mm-hmm. involved. Um, this is a case for, for a case where you don't have the identities of the victims. This is a case that's huge and it's, it's spanned over the, over across the USA, you know, mm-hmm. looking for these people in every state, medical records, elementary schools, uh, everything that they could do. You have the, you have the first barrel in 1985, then the second barrel in 2000. And if that's not strange enough, nothing, none of this leads to, to answers. Yeah. But the, this case is going to take a twist in 2017. Yeah, it's this thing's going to bust wide open. Um, but I do, and we'll we'll get to that tomorrow. Yeah, because so. we're running out of time here. But I do have to throw this out here, Captain. Mm-hmm. This is this is one of the strangest cases I've ever I've ever read about. It might be the strangest case that we've reviewed so far, and we've re, we've reviewed some very strange and odd cases. And yeah, and we'll dive into that tomorrow. And we'll dive in that to, and we'll dive into that tomorrow. I want to I want to thank everybody for uh, all the feedback on the Brandon Lawson case. I did mm-hmm. take it to some buddies of mine. Everybody was asking for an update. I did take it to some some of my audio engineering buddies to look at. Uh, we just couldn't really come up with anything clearer on than those. what we found here. Right. So we're just kind of stuck at this point. Maybe uh as technology gets more advanced in that case, that will help us out with that 911 call. If you are looking for an update, you can go to our website, truecrimegarage.com. There are a lot of people that have posted things that they think that they're hearing what Brandon is saying, as well as theories that they think that's going on. And interesting enough to me, a lot of the people chiming in seem to be from Texas that are able to offer a little more insight as to the area that that case took place. And make sure you subscribe to the show. Make sure you tell a friend. And we'll see you guys here tomorrow. Until tomorrow, everybody be good, be kind, and don't litter. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team, so successful. But to do something like that? To exceed their budget? While being over budget might not be a crime, it can disrupt workflows. With Monday.com, you and the team can be sure that you're all in sync. All the data, latest updates, files, and budgets are visible to everyone, so you won't miss a thing. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.